Hey folks, it's Jeff Wenzel from the Woodshed Agency, and you are listening to my podcast called Successfully Funded. Here we go. Turn it up. Turn it up. Yeah! All right, folks, how is everybody doing? Are we doing all right? Awesome. Uh, so I'm recording this intro uh, for our new podcast uh, episode uh, from... Uh, Frankfort, Michigan here. I am actually sitting on Platte River and I am watching the current go by. It is Sunday morning. It's about eight in the morning and I am officially on vacation, but I could not step away from our podcast considering we just got it started here. But uh, I am kind of just taking in the scenery here, um, you know, taking on the ambiance, watching the river go. Everybody's kind of still asleep. Um, it's peaceful. It's a very nice thing. So coming up on today's episode though, uh, I have a great interview with Vlad Draguzin from Candy Lab Toys. And Vlad, if I uh, mispronounced your last name, I apologize. That is not one of my specialties in life, uh, but I'm trying. But uh, Vlad and I had a great conversation last week. Um, he's currently got a Kickstarter uh, campaign uh, that's uh, up and active and has already funded. And it is for the Mid-Century Americana Awesome Wood Toys. And, um, you know, so currently they're at $83,000 with 768 backers with 25 days to go. So this is a monster, monster successfully campaign. And this conversation between Vlad and myself was awesome. We got into manufacturing in America. Um, we also got into what happens in a campaign when you kind of have two different um, objectives. And for them, it, not only are they making the wood toys, but they're also trying to get overfunding to get a factory so that they can put manufacturing here in America. So that conversation was one of the best ones I've had in a long time because it was rich with a lot of deep insides to what's going on with a small business. Um, and this was also uh, their third campaign. So we, we got into some really, really cool conversation. So... Um, Check out that, that conversation coming up here in a little bit, but, but let's go back to a little bit of, of where I am right now. So uh, so I, since I've been born, I, I've been coming up to this area. Um, uh, my family uh, um, has a, had a family friend, has a family, family friend that owns a cottage here on Platte River, and uh, I've been coming up here since I was you know, born, and it's a mo- major, major part of my childhood, and I'm, uh, I get to you know, give that to my kids. Um, so already this morning I got to go into downtown Frankfurt and, and, uh, go to a, a nice cool bakery. That's, that's new. And just came back with some great donuts. And we've got fam- our family friends up here with us. Um, you know, today's going to be going to the beach and just giving all of these memories, you know, to my kids that I have. And it is such a rewarding thing that it's hard to explain. And I know a lot of the, the dads out there and, and the parents will understand this, but, um, you know, I, it's just such a great, great area. It's, it's a peaceful area. Um, so much so that last night while we were out having some drinks after the kids finally, finally fell asleep after the chaoticness of, of getting up here and getting settled and getting the new routine going, but we were probably within three foot of a deer walking up to us. I mean, just literally right in the backyard, walking up and just, you know, being that close to not only just nature, cause I'm not like a nature, nature guy, but it is just kind of, you know, just getting back to, the roots for without sounding cheesy but um but i just i love this area and i love what it does and i love how it creates this this ambiance and vibe and um uh, it's such a rich feeling and and i'm happy that i that i actually get to do this podcast because i think looking back on even my conversations right now is i get to be in the moment of of what's going on around me um just a funny story is uh I was told growing up that there was a witch's house in Frankfurt and um, completely ridiculous. And now starting to think about these same sort of things that, that my parents are going through the same age as I am now. You know, so I always thought that there was this witch's house and it's, a, and, and this house is a big, huge old, like Victorian style mansion looking house. But literally just about 40 minutes ago, driving through Frankfurt, uh, I, I went by it and I just showed Addie and I told him that the, that's where the witch lives. She lives up in the attic, and and she cast a spell on all the squirrels, and turned all the squirrels black. Um, they used to be brown, like we see around our house, but up here, this witch got a hold of them, and he's just, oh my god, I can't wait. And 
you know, I know that I'm, I'm planning the same sort of memories for him, for his kids, you know, 30 years from now, 25 years from now. Um, so it's an awesome, awesome experience, but, um, so yeah, so I'm going to be up here for, for a few days here with the family. Um, uh, I'm probably going to do another podcast. I, I've got a, uh, I've got three or four really good, uh, conversations in the, um, can right now. And I want to get those out and get those to you guys so that you guys can hear um, some of their success stories for crowdfunding. Um, what was intriguing too about this conversation I had with Vlad was, um, the sort of notion that he's taking on, on kid toys. And this is something I talked about in my last podcast of, of this sort of throwaway mentality that we have for toys, that everything's plastic. And, and I'm completely guilty of this. I mean, we've got so many, so many plastic toys. It's fairly ridiculous. But, um, but, but Vlad and I got into a nice conversation of where he's going with toys is, is really looking at them and, and imagining your kid playing with them for 20 years or giving them to their kids. And, and maybe, maybe changing uh, our entire mindset and getting into a point where I don't need 45 toys. I need one toy that I really dig and I care and I respect for. And that was intriguing too because I read a, a, a piece from Stephen Hawking the other day where um, he had an interesting quote of just that if, if, Ameri- if the world's going to survive, and I, oh, I, think, I think his article is about Brexit. So if you, know, you want to Google it, Stephen Hawking Brexit, I'm sure it'll pop up. It was just a couple days ago. But in his post, you know, he really gets into... Um, that if, if the human species basically is going to survive, we have to do some core mental changing. And we have to start figuring out how to live differently, share differently, expectations differently, almost a complete 360. And I see exactly what he's talking about because it's, it's the internal struggles I have. Um, you know, uh, I fight the, the more, more, more mentality. I fight this everything has to come from China. And I understand that, you know, that's, we're in a global colony. So it's not that it's just, you know, so few of my kids toys have any value to them. You know, even to myself, there's just a, hey, it, it appeases a moment, you send it out and, and, and you go on. And, you know, I'm looking at, at this candy lab Kickstarter and imagining buying my son a $200 car set right of wooden toys that has a different impact on on um not only the manufacturing but the impact of the world right it's so much harder to produce plastic than it is to do some of these wood toys on the ecosystem we get into that part of the conversation which i thought which kind of just blew my mind it was definitely something i've never thought of um but but standing back and going what if i got my son a 200 dollar uh you know car set which would, you know, I sent it to my wife and her reaction was instantly, are you out of your mind? And am I out of my mind? You know, I, I'm not so sure I am out of my mind. Um, but definitely sitting here, there's just so many emotions um, that this place brings out in me. Um, peacefulness, obviously, is kind of the first one. I mean, you can hear in the background, you can hear the, the, the chirping of birds and, and all that stuff. And and the sound of a few car, passing cars. But on top of that, it just, it, so many emotions of just, you know, I have my memories and, and envisioning my childhood and starting to see the, the same things that I did uh, as a kid, I'm starting to see in my kids. And it is, it's very, very, very overwhelming. Um, but yeah, well, I think the kids are calling. I have some donuts to eat. Um, I'm going to head on back, but, but check out my conversation with Vlad from Candy Labs Toys. Um, and, and obviously go to their Kickstarter, check them out because I love what they're trying to do. I love this conversation with Vlad. I, I, like I said, it, it really meant a lot to me to have, have a good 40 minutes with him to talk. And I hope you guys find the same value that I find in it. And, um, um real quick, let me do a couple shout outs. So real quick, um, if you're planning on doing a Kickstarter campaign, I would strongly recommend emailing me. Um, we're going to have some um, um, live Q&A events coming up here soon where we're going to actually take some questions. So that's going to be coming up if you're thinking about running a campaign. Also, if you um, have a campaign live that is struggling a bit, no problem. Email us. There might be a few things we can do. There's no magic bullet. I can't promise you anything, but maybe I've got a few suggestions for you. 
Um, and then obviously sign up for our newsletter. I send out a ton of great information um, just on social media, marketing tactics, um, tools we're using. Um, and I try to update that at least once a week um, while this podcast comes out to, uh, well, twice a week. So hope, hopefully we're giving you a lot of information. So, so like I said, sign up for those things. Um, stay informed. And if you got questions, never hesitate to email me. I will take every question and email and get back to you as soon as I possibly can. So, all right, without further ado, let's kick it to my talk with Candy Lab, Toys, and Vlad. Here we go. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. How's it going? It's going well. How are you? Oh, I can't complain. You know, I'm hanging out this morning, getting it kind of going for real. Good, good. Yeah. So what time, what time zone are you on? Uh, I'm in Detroit. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Are you in, you in New York right now? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Brooklyn. So yeah. We're, it's 10 in the morning, you know? Just... It's 10 in the morning. Yeah. Cool. I, I got my, uh, my yoga workouts coming up later today. That will really work me up, you know, get me going, but uh, not quite there yet. So. Nice. Nice. How did I was curious? How did you find us? Oh, I found you. Uh, I search Kickstarter all the time. I, I am an agency. I uh, I'm helping out with tons of campaigns, so I, I get a lot of leads coming my way of people just sending me cool stuff. Um, I, you know, I've, I've ran over 300 successful campaigns, so I'm just really plugged into Kickstarter. So I'm searching it almost every day. And you uh -huh. guys, you guys popped up in in the, the the projects we love section or whatever. And uh, from there, I went and just. <laughs> ended up showing it to my son. I got a five-year-old son. And I think you can imagine his reaction. Uh, so yeah. I think I'm buying some Christmas presents, uh, you know, because um, uh, uh, I love, I just love it, man. It is just so into uh, my wheelhouse in terms of design and aesthetic. And, and obviously we'll get a little more into it maybe in the call, but just this whole idea of kind of maybe even uh, valuing toys a little bit more. Um, I'm sure you guys are getting a little bit of that conversation amongst your products. So, um, but yeah, so that's that's kind of the quick nutshell version of uh, uh, of how I found you. Awesome, cool, cool. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, I mean, and then too. Uh, so, a little bit about this podcast is I love to talk to kind of creators who are either successfully funded or are on the verge of successfully funding, and you know, talk a little bit about obviously the project, um, and then deconstruct a little bit of you know how are you successful so fast. You know, was there any anything you guys did? And then know that our, our our listeners are people who are doing crowdfunding or thinking about it, you know, may have had some success in the past or, um, you know, so just kind of talking a little bit about that. And, you know, we try to have about a half hour conversation and, you know, go from there. Sounds good. Let's do it, Jeff. Cool, cool. So I guess just right out of the gate, how did you start making wood toys? So um, I'm... My my background is is in architecture and design. I'm actually a registered architect, but I've done product design as part of my daily kind of duties on a job. Mm -hmm. And um, wood is something that I always felt close to in terms of material. I design furniture. I, I work with it um, every day um, in my projects. Uh, then I became a dad. I also love cars. <laughs> As a father, you're then exposed to a whole new universe in terms of toys and kids' products and all that kind of stuff. So just sort of um, uh, mashing all this together, it, it created and it resulted in, in, in an idea that we want to start a toy company mm -hmm. that's focusing on cars made out of wood, old school way, because as you noted, um, I feel like the plastic, cheap plastic toy is completely overrepresented. Yeah today's landscape mm -hmm. so that's and that was about four years ago that when the like the first kernel of the idea uh sprouted that's cool so where did you grow up what's a little I bit up, like your background I, yeah i grew up in romania in bucharest i was born and raised there went to college there and right after college uh my wife and i moved to chicago oh really and yeah and that's the sort of the rest of history we've been uh, we've been uh in chicago then we moved to new york and and for, for many many years so uh that's our that's our kind of gist of our story well that's that's awesome so 
so you have uh it sounds like a son is that is that correct no i actually have two daughters two daughters really <laughs> interesting yeah, so they're really into cars so yeah so you're probably seeing or, or have seen or been involved in like the other side of that equation because i have a daughter too who's three and i i i can't stand the the girl toys you know like um just you know it's barbie or bust in a nutshell right like um, i i totally agree yeah you, you yeah. know so one of the big conversations around our house is just trying to expose them again to toys that I think are going to last. Uh, I just had my daughter's birthday on Sunday and I I'm sitting, I'm literally sitting around a bunch of toys that I'm like, I'm going to throw these away and, or, you know, donate them or whatever in five months. So I, I got to imagine that that had to have been a spark that you were seeing of like, put some value into these products, put some, you know, some time and care into these toys. And I bet you they're going to last 30 years, 40 years, you know, uh, they're going to be around forever. So was that going on in your brain too? Absolutely. So uh, interesting fact. So both my parents are chemical engineers, so they design chemical plants. Wow. So not that I was exposed necessarily on like tours of of factories and, and things like that growing up, but... I, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, just kind of as a, as a sidelines observer, but I also became aware as, let's say, a teenager, high school, college, I know what it takes to create plastic. I don't think people think about that, but in order to make plastic pellets, which then are injected into toys that you see everywhere, not only toys, right? I mean, anything mm-hmm. from staplers to computer parts, um, plastic is, is an extremely toxic product. Getting the plastic made, which actually, once made, it is neutral. There's nothing wrong with it. But creating that plastic requires some really harmful chemicals, acids, and all sorts of things that they have to be dumped somewhere. So this is almost like the unknown part of our world economy. Like the planet is drowning in plastic, but it's not necessarily the plastic as an end result, which is bad in itself as it is. But it's just plastic and what it takes to make it. So... um. So not to to sort of dwell on that too much. Obviously, it's a necessary product, and you know, there's there's obviously products where you can't avoid making making plastic for like laptops and parts and I don't know aircraft. But when it comes to toys, it is not required. The only thing that's really driving it is the convenience of the manufacturer and um, the fact that it's inexpensive. So. With that in mind, our toys will not last thousands of years, <laughs> as mm-hmm. a plastic toy will, will. But um, so they will last for a few decades, um, depending on how you care for them. But they have no harmful footprint. Obviously, I don't need to to, to kind of repeat this. Everybody understands that. But I think um, it kind of almost bears repeating that the process of creating wood toys is. Um, uh, much less uh, taxing on on everybody else, the environment and such. So that would be, um, to your point, that would be sort of the first thing. So that's why wood toys, um, almost to kind of expand on that. Secondly, and I say this story, uh, I've said this story many, many times, um, how this look and design came to be, people are always ask me. So funny thing is, uh, one of my daughters, my oldest daughter which at the time she was six um we just had dinner so we had this type of pasta who comes in a tapered cardboard box Mm -hmm. which is almost like a tray so my daughter was playing with it and she's like hey dad can you put some wheels on it and turn it into a car i'm like absolutely (laughs) so after dinners we got a couple of skewer sticks i i cut out some discs for wheels i i drew some headlights and doors on that box and she was like playing with it and i'm I'm, I realized that this is a, a nice, simple, boxy um, look that could potentially go well in a, in a wood design uh, kind of fashion. And, and that's, that was really the, the starting point. So in a way, I can say that my daughter <laughs> came up with the idea of it. <laughs> well, I, love the, I just love the whole, like, the landscape of it. You know, like the look, the whole, you, you know, you, you, put, you put the you know, I guess the kid or whoever playing with it right into like a scene from, you know, the seventies, it feels like, you know, it almost has a little bit of that. What was that movie? Was that the vice movie? Was that, that, that the movie? you know, it's like, it has that like tone to it, you know, with, with the, the fonts and stuff. It's just, I mean, I love the seventies, you know, I, I grew up in the, you know, late seventies, early eighties. So I just love this whole look in general. One of our big projects right now is, uh, I don't know if you remember cream magazine, um, from back in the day out of Detroit, but it was an old rock magazine from the 70s. So, you know, Alice Cooper on the cover and, you know, just Bowie 
and just that 70s vibe. So I'm like, for the last year, I have been so entrenched in it. And I think it's actually making a comeback. So I I love the timing, too, of these, like, the the way the the cars look and the fonts. It's just such a great scene, you know? Nice. Yeah, it's awesome. I I think, I think, I just want to add one more thing. I think in terms of a product, what happens today is that a lot of kids' toys, like young kids' toys, um, are, are very specifically done for kids. So it's, it's a little bit hard for an adult to be genuinely interested. I mean, they're interested because the kids are into it, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily that you, you kind of find a lot of attraction as a grown-up in, in some of these, like, three-year-old toys. Right. But that was one thing that we, from the get-go, we set out to do. Um, we wanted adults to be interested in it. That's why, that's why our toys sometimes have very specific clues about what they um what they derived or in, inspired from um and the result almost unexpected of that is that these toys actually um are not really toys in some people's eyes they they become like gift items or uh just things that they put on their shelf on yeah. their desk just because they remind them of something like a movie yep. or a car or something like that yeah I, I could totally see that i was just thinking in my head i was like you know this would look awesome on a you know shelf in my house you know or on yep. my desk at work this would be you know this would be cool so right. let's talk a little bit about the greatest kickstarter video i think i've ever seen and i have watched a million of them where did this video come from that you guys made because it's awesome it's a great great video which one the the, the just the, the kickstarter video in general the the kickstarter video is so good it's so well done you, know? you mean our current campaign? Yeah, yeah, the current campaign, the 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 Kickstarter video that's just right there on the front page of 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 uh, you you guys eventually walking to the factory and just how the cars are like played with. <laughs> um, I mean, there was a there's some there's some pro work going on in there. Thank you very much. There's none of that going on. We are not pros by far. Whoa. I think the only the only pro in there is uh, is my my friend Adrian who who shot this. So he's basically the the cameraman behind all this. But we've edited with friends. Um, we we've done it in a very kind of bootstrappy fashion, and I think it actually kind of shows. Uh, if you're a real pro, you could probably tell there's some there's some kind of quirks in there. We're obviously pretty happy with the result. Um, and to answer your question, where it came from is, so funny enough, so we have basically two stories to tell on this campaign. And it becomes a little complex to try to really boil this down into three minutes or so. So the first story is that we're launching these new products and they are this, this, and that. Cars, buildings, cactus. Mm-hmm. And that also kind of adds to complexity because we're not just launching like one car or two cars as um, like your typical campaign would have a product, right? Yep. And it comes in three colors. Uh, no, we have like five SKUs that we're launching. So yep. that's already a, like kind of a daunting task to not model up the message. Mm-hmm. Second part of this is that we want to raise some extra funds to invest in a U.S. Uh, manufacturing uh capacity of some sort a small shop a bigger shop depends on how much uh over our goal we're going to end up with right so sort of merging these two messages is not easy so we had to figure out a compelling attractive way to kind of get people into it to show them how the toys could have a story on their own you know like mm-hmm. hey you're going to the movie so that's why we shot a little bit of a dark scene with, with one of our cards uh, stopping in front of a big screen as it used to kind of happen. Um, so that's, that's, those are the big ideas behind the, behind the edit. And rest assured, we scrapped many scenario <laughs> versions. We, we shot a bunch of footage that we never used. And <laughs> it was not necessarily a linear process, um, music and, and all that. So, uh, we we put a lot of work behind it, but like I said, we're we're no pros. We, we just try to do our best as as common sense driven sort of decisions. Well, well, I look at it as you know, I, I I'm not the tech. I have a video crew that works for my team too, so they would probably see those things. But what I looked at it as, instantly kind of going through it, I guess if I had a red flag for as, as somebody who consults on these things, it would have been that multiple messaging, right? But so when right. I looked at this video, the way you guys were able to you know describe. Hey, not only have we got to get to this factory, but we're also knocking out these, you know, like you said, five SKUs or whatever it is. And it's like, 
that's complicated what you're doing on Kickstarter. And to see the success already tells me that, that you hit the messaging, the tone was correct, the way it was shot on how you, it just kind of kind of just dissolves into the building, right? Like it just works in there. That's why I was like, for what, for the work you guys put into it, I'm sh- it it did sell the message to me instantly. A, a complicated message. Um, it did. It's just that's what I was looking at. It was like such a good video. Um, Thank, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. So so this is the third campaign, the third Kickstarter campaign, right? If I'm not mistaken. That's right. That's uh, right. So what was the first two? Was it just to kind of get the first products off the door? So the first one was really us going out on a limb, my partner and I, with a few prototypes to see what would happen because we wanted to get some funding going to make a very first batch of products. Mm-hmm. We were initially thinking that we're going to just make a, make a few hundred in, in our little garage shop and, and just kind of go from there. Um, we got funded to a level that put us beyond that, which created its own problems because now we had, you know, about 1,100 people. So that meant we can no longer make it ourselves. We had to go to China and China does have some uh, minimum order quantities that will in fact require an investment, right? uh, which people sometimes forget about. And (laughs) essentially um, the economics of a campaign that's not quite large enough to leave you with enough profit, but not small enough to just kind of, you're able to sort of fly under the radar and just kind of make them in your backyard. Um, those are some really kind of <laughs> lessons that we had to, to learn right away. Uh, the second campaign was essentially the point where we had a reached a, um, kind of more mature sort of business model. We had sales by then, we had some trade shows, we had some accounts and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So the second campaign was more of a, um, hey, we've refined this to a point where now we can safely do this and we know what to expect uh, and how the campaign will run and all that. So, yeah. So so going from that second one, I got the first one. First one was kind of the, sounds like the, uh, you know, swinging the bat for the first time. What would, right. what do you think has the, been the biggest difference from the second campaign to the third campaign? Because number one, you've already you've already funded your you know that initial goal, and you have right. thirty more days to go. So this could be a monster campaign on Kickstarter when it's all said and done. So what do you think the biggest change has been from two to three? In terms of us, or in terms of in general, the idea. I guess you know what more more just around the campaign itself. Was there like a bigger strategy that you use, or do you think that just that just time has been the biggest factor? Like, um, you know, your your product's getting more popular. Um, you've proven success in the past. Do you think there's any like major, you know, change you think in those things, or is it just do you think it's just in general? So. And I'm not sure if this answers your question or not, but the first thing that we're noticing, and especially compared to three years ago or even four years ago, which, you know, I've been obviously a, on Kickstarter as a platform for, mm-hmm. for, for far than that. Um, so there's there's a certain, um, how should I put it? There's a certain efficiency that we, we're reaching, right? Obviously right now we have yeah. some logistics down, fulfillment, was a big problem. The first campaign was less of a problem the second time. So this this third time, we've already been uh, refining our process. So we we expect no problems whatsoever. Um, the one thing that we're seeing though is that Kickstarter as a platform requires a bit of an investment uh, on the marketing side. Yeah. So um, there's many there's there's a lot of ink that has been spilled on this subject so i don't want to necessarily add to what's already been discussed but um you do require i think a strategy going into a kickstarter campaign um if you want to how should i put it there's there's different levels of a campaign that you can have you're like super happy with your ten thousand dollar campaign because you're at that level and ten thousand dollars will make a difference for developing your product Maybe you're going to have a campaign that maybe gets into six figures, and that represents a good amount of pre-sales and pre-orders, which will also help with your product. But you also have other things going on, like you have a retail channel of your own, maybe you already sell online, maybe you have some wholesale accounts and that kind of stuff. And there's this third level, right, which, which people tend to get really uh, enthralled and obviously captures their imagination, like a $5 million campaign, $1 million campaign, like 19 figure campaign, a billion to the moon. Yep. So 
<laughs> that requires a significant investment. Let me just put it this way. So maybe there's some accidents out there when it just kind of catches um, on fire, goes viral, or something happens, and you have a little gadget that will just, just burn like crazy, and you're just sitting there seeing the pledges coming in. More often than not, though, these campaigns are the result of a very careful planned um, marketing effort and media effort, which takes money and effort to implement. Takes a team, mm-hmm. um, and and again, I'm I'm saying this because I don't want folks to be disappointed if they don't hit like half a million bucks in the first two weeks. <laughs> right. So yeah. I, I like just kind of setting expectations yep. uh, straight. So, so did you guys use a, a firm to help out on this third one? Was that a change at all between? Or did you always have a firm you were working with? Or how much did you guys do on your own? We tried a few things. Um, but again, it, it's, it gets pretty expensive. So, um, so far, we're, we're entirely in our own. We have um, a little bit of help from, from someone who's pretty savvy with media and has, has a bunch of contacts. So he's helping us uh, get some press. And basically, this is the way that, obviously, the press works is that they have to like your stuff so they write about it yeah there's a lot of like other types of engagement you pay for that whatever but we never we never dipped into that and our business model doesn't allow for it either so we're pretty happy to kind of organically get what we get from people generally getting excited about our product uh most articles that we get are long articles people get in, in in depth and we we love what the writers have to say we got some press from wired from bbc um, and, and a couple other websites so far. And these take time to kind of trickle down. Yeah. Um, as far as marketing, yes, we did try a few things, the usual digital marketing approaches, uh, Facebook, Google uh, ads, and that kind of stuff. But uh, the jury's still out on that one, whether we're going to go ahead and sort of press the pedal uh, all the way. Um, like I said, it does get expensive. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think everybody has to sort of draw a line and see where the business model is, if it affords for that much of, a, <clears throat> of an investment, if their margins are there, um, and w- w- what, what do you expect to do? So maybe this comes as an obvious thing, but I, what we do is we, we capture all costs in a monster Excel file, and we just plug everything in, and we run a few scenarios, like what's a $50,000 campaign going to get us? What's a 100000 What's a $200,000 campaign going to get us? Uh, because you you will get hit with a lot of costs from Kickstarter and credit card fees mm-hmm. to um, filming to marketing to fulfillment to shipping and all that. So I think uh, my advice uh, I'm I'm not sure if if your audience um, is, is is considering a campaign they've done one already so it may come as an obvious one but my advice is to really and very closely look at all possible expenses that are going to be associated with this. So out of, out of those over 500 backers, what are you seeing as the demographics of it right now? Um, are, is it all over, the, all over the world? Is it you know, still U.S.-based? What, what's kind of some data looking like early on for you guys? Or maybe even the past on the last campaigns? Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a little hard to tell because... So we can we can tell geographically where folks are coming from, but we can't tell how old they are or what their right, right, right. levels are or what are they necessarily like. You see that a little more with Instagram because by association you see who likes your material and what they also like. So you kind of make some in, in fair, inferring. But it's pretty safe to say uh, that like the following are true. Uh, so Google Analytics shows us that a ratio of like almost 20 to 1, U.S. is the most, like, the, the primary market. Mm-hmm. Um, then um, I would say that at least for our audience, it skews slightly male. Um, and I, age-wise, I really can't tell. Yeah. Uh, that kind of information is not available. Income-wise, again, I think they, they, they range from everywhere. There's folks who pledge uh, or $500, so... Obviously, there's some disposable income there, uh, but there's folks that are very happy to pledge us, and they love their, their, their little things that are getting, like a little surfboard or the early bird cars, which are quite affordable at $19. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, we, we also try with in, in that, on that chapter, we try to uh, offer our, our products in bundles that range from 
low pledges in terms of amount to, to high value, to high dollar value uh, items. Um, so, so yeah, so demographics, I think, um, like I said, so primarily U.S., uh, slightly male. Uh, we have a lot of grandparents. We have a lot of moms. Um, we have a lot of folks that are just design buffs, and they just like the look of it, so they're not parents. Um, they just like to put them on their shelf. Is, is, and is that... Is there any shock on any of these things, or is this kind of in your early business plans? Like you kind of knew, like this is going to be the audience. Has there been anything that like stood out at all? No, I I don't think so. I think I think by now we kind of realize what our audience is. So if somebody likes um, certain things, um, and it's funny, it's like almost if they like certain products or they back certain campaigns. Um, you you almost think that they're going to be a good match with your with your product with our stuff. So um, I, I, there's a very tricky uh, digital marketing game that you have to to do, which honestly we haven't quite mastered yet. But <laughs> <laughs> you can you can in, in, infer from from this bit of info, uh, you can create um, and sort of fine tune your audiences so so you know who to target in terms of information. And this is something that's been ongoing with our website, with our online sales and, and all that. And I think that's something that every business these days has to do. Yeah. So let's let's flip a little bit over to, uh, is it Pete, the guy you partnered with, to help with kind of the, the, the back end? Yes. So walk me through a little bit in your company how you, you know, maybe internally how you guys started to decide, like, you know what, we're going to need a little bit of help, right? Like, you know, we can't do this ourselves or, you know, you know, that's a very humbling thing, I think, for a lot of companies to hear. How did you guys start making that decision of like, you know what, we're, if we're going to go to this point, we're going to have to get some other experts involved. Uh, how did you guys go, come, you know, find him or come to that? Or was it an old friend? Talk, talk to me a little bit about that. So we've done trade shows for about three years now. Mm -hmm. So trade shows are like this, these little fairs where people with obviously similar interests and similar job descriptions, they have a small company. They show up. It, it's business to business, obviously. So right. you're on the same side of the fence, right? Mm -hmm. So you set up a booth. You like borrow a stapler, some I don't know, a drill, a glue gun, whatever. Um, we um, because we're in the same. We tend to be put in the same uh, locations. Obviously, you would be across the aisle from Uncle Goose. Right. That's how we came to know uh, the owner of Uncle Goose. His name is Pete. Um, there are always a great bunch of people that show up. Pete himself is very kind of James Bondish. <laughs> he's he's just a really really cool guy. He's absolutely in love with what he does. He is a no compromise, um, quality first, craft first, and extremely knowledgeable in terms of making stuff. Uh, kind of person. That's just who he is. So um, that's something that I think we share. We we both love the stuff we do. So we don't, it's not really like commercial. We're not interested in being on aisle five at Target. So I think that kind of transpires through the process. So we kind of naturally gravitated towards each other. Mm -hmm. We started talking. He does, um, he does wood blocks. We do wood cars. So we, we started talking about a possible collaboration. So after a while, um, when we came out with this concept of doing blocks and buildings, it was only natural that for the Made in USA portion of our line, of our brand that we've always been wanting to, to do and add, it was only natural that we reach out to him. He has a, he has a factory that has been running for a couple of decades now. Uh, his dad started it, so he's very kind of invested in it. Mm -hmm. um, again, he was generally excited about our product, and uh, it was an easy thing. Hey, Pete, why don't we work together on this? Um, he's like, would love to do it, and that the, the rest of it was like super quick and easy. When he says he does something, he just does it. Um, again, he has a factory, so right. <laughs> so right. in a week he will crank out some prototypes, paint them, cut them, set up a CNC router. Uh, has the lumber in somewhere in stock, just in the in the back of his warehouse, and it just happens. That's so um, yeah, so so yeah, so he'll make uh, he'll make the rewards, the building blocks, and um, um, you know we'll we'll see from there. Um, like in terms of um, 
like the next steps for this product line. But I think for Kickstarter and for right now, we're just really happy to have them and be able to say they're made by Uncle Goose in USA. Yeah. So how, so it sounds like that's obviously a very important thing. I think even when you look at you know the type of like muscle cars and all that stuff to have that made in the USA, is that something you guys are obviously striving for throughout this product line and and see how as how far as you can take it? It seems like that's obviously a very important thing for you guys. Well, there's a, there's a few things happening here. So first of all, I think from a brand perception standpoint, so we say design in Brooklyn, right? We don't want to mislead anybody, mm-hmm. but to kind of go back a little bit real quick is we did try to make these cars in the USA when we knew nothing about wood manufacturing here. And what we discovered, and it took us about a year to really come to terms with this, we sent out a bunch of RFPs and all that. And we said, you know what? looks like people gave up on mass production, wood mass production in the USA. All we could find was like cabinetry shops and high-end furniture shops, people who really know their craft, Mm -hmm. but they're not equipped to make thousands of widgets in wood. They will make a beautiful countertop or beautiful pieces of furniture that would sell them for $20,000, but they're not going to make, you know, 5,000 pieces at like, you know, $3 each or something like that, right? So... Then we went to China. So we skipped the garage phase, which was, a, in a way, very painful for us because we know nothing about China and international logistics and importing a container worth of goods and all that. Yeah. So we had to learn. We did learn. We kind of survived through it. So now we are part of that economy, right? Mm. Like Target. The aisles are full of that or Walmart or whatever. Yep. But we're not quite happy with it. Not only because, obviously, I think we should keep that business here. But frankly, from a practical standpoint, it just poses a lot of challenges. There's there's a really long lead time. There's customs procedures. There's communication issues. Getting on a flight to China to check on your stuff for like 15 hours, I, I'd, I'd much rather travel three hours to Pennsylvania where we, right. where we tend to make our shop. Yeah. Um, and, and lastly, which I think is the most important part, yes, for folks who don't know or don't care about all these challenges, they see a muscle car, they're like, yeah, it's made in USA, right? <laughs> no, it's made in China. Because if it would be made in USA, you'd have to pay $140. There, and then nobody would buy it. The product right. would stop selling and nobody wins. So, yeah. So I think uh, figuring out how to do this, how to mass produce wood items in the USA again i think it's it's really important to us so so this is this might be a very big question that we might not have time to get into on this one but i mean when you when you're looking at this you know all of these equations right and you're trying to figure it out is there a solution for the united states to bring back some manufacturing is there any way i mean to keep the cost appropriate because not only you i I have four or five clients right now making a product and I have no answer for them besides you got to go to China. You got to go get your plastic part there. I don't, you know, sorry, you know, and, and I also work with like the state of Michigan and the Capitol. I, I do some work here and, and I just have no answers. And so I'm, I guess in your guys' mind, in the position you're in, you're attempting, you want to be here. H- how do you guys do it? Do you see what the answers are 10 years from now, five years from now to, to, to keep that job here Keep that manufacturing here. Keep the plan open, whatever it might be. What, what's in your mind for that? This is a uh, this is really my favorite subject. So it, it's almost as if we're almost past the designs for the wood toys. Like right now, we can we can our product pipeline is filled out for the next twenty months. Mm-hmm. We know what we're going to do. We have this thing down. So the next challenge is, like you said, is to to make them here, and of course, to make them efficiently. Right. And the answer to your question is, in our mind, an emphatic yes. And I'm going to tell you why. First of all, why hasn't it been done, hasn't it been, been done already? Because it's not easy. Because it's much easier to go to China, order things for a few dollars, uh, get a container load of stuff, and then bring it back so let our profit repeat the process. China has been very good at making it extremely easy for their manufacturers to do these kinds of things. 
they offer incentives, they offer downright payments, they offer free, I don't know, free land, free this, free that, obviously salaries, the whole currency, I'm not going to get into yeah, politics yeah. right now, right? So it's very easy for them to do this. Here, it's not. Real estate is what it is, right? It's yep. market rates. Nobody's going to put a big pile of money in your pocket and say, hey, open a factory for us because we have this national pride thing going on that we want to do. So you got to figure out how to do it, which I think is the healthy sustainable kind of way and that is automation hmm. so if you think about it a milk carton a dozen of eggs and all that they all require some sort of automation they're very humble products that we use and touch every day i'm not talking about making laptops and right. electronics right. which is a very complex thing and yeah. the answer to that would be no not overnight you can't shift a lenovo factory back to the u.s just like that mm -hmm. right but Making wood widgets, very humble, very simple products with very simple automation is something that is at our fingertips, readily available right now with actuators that you buy online with little software custom developments and all that. It's just that nobody had the incentive to do it because it's much easier to go to China. Hmm. So we kind of want to break that cycle and give it a shot. See, see if we can do it. Do you see like any tax incentives helping push this along or, or are there any barriers in that world that you see right um, now besides time and being it difficult to do right like we, we've started doing uh research on this kind of stuff but it it's funny it's a catch-22 so people will or, or cities or entities will give you tax breaks and things when you're already successful banks, it's like similar to banks yeah. giving loans when you already have a bunch of business and money. So it is a bit of a catch-22. So you're asking for a grant. They're like, what are your sales? Do you qualify? You're not $5 million a year and all that. So there's there's a lot of challenges there, but we're working on that. So that's, that's number one. Um, uh, number two, I think, is um, the... the um, the incentives and the economics of it, again, we believe will work if we get to that level. If you have that initial sort of investment, that, you know, that first thing that you try, and this is where Kickstarter comes in, hopefully. Right. So, Do you see equity crowdfunding being able to pick up some of the slack in, in, in ideas like yours? What do you mean by equity crowdfunding? Uh, so the, the law that Obama passed... Uh... But, well, four years ago they wrote it, but it, the ability to go out and basically bring on um, oh. equity partners and, and raise a million dollars, you know, uh, and give away some right. equity to your company to kind of fill that gap um, that we're talking about a little bit. We have not tried it yet. Um, again, I think that in itself is a process. Mm -hmm. like, oh, it totally is. Yeah. yeah, so basically you'd have to put your pencils down and go from designing <laughs> automation and toys, uh, you'd have to kind of go into financials and go to meetings and put business plans together. And yes, we are starting to do some of that. I mean, I think, I think any, any company kind of owes it to itself to have a hard look at that option and see if it at least makes sense. Yeah. Um, but as of right now, we're still self-funded, entirely homegrown, proudly so. That's awesome. So which is your favorite car right now? The Blackjack, the Ace, the Pioneer? <laughs> which one's your favorite? So right now it's the Pioneer. It Pioneer? They kind of, they got to vary from one day to another. Like one day I'm super <laughs> in love with the Blackjack. And then I'm, it. I think I, I like the Blackjack. That's, that one looks pretty hip. <laughs> my my six-year-old daughter is constant about that. And she, that's her favorite. That's sweet. That, she loves it. Yeah. It's cool. a different one. So how about one more question? So if there was one thing for this for this campaign on the campaign side, one thing that you would suggest somebody does before they before they launch, what would it be? Oh, I, that's a really tough one, Jeff, because I have about twenty things that I, <laughs> yeah, I know. There's twenty. <laughs> if, if there was one main focus, obviously, you know, Twitter, Facebook ads, you know, mailing list. If there was one thing that you would focus on, you know, well. Is this like a first campaign or is this a functioning business? I don't want to waste first, my... Yeah, yeah. How about a first one? First, first campaign out of the gate, uh, you, know, you know, first one out of the gate for somebody. Okay. So the first, if this is the first venture into this, I would say, and this is through the lens of our first experience, I would say 
make sure you can deliver what you promise. And this is, I know it sounds a little like... That's a great one. It's what we tell everybody. I know, because it's it's obvious, but this yeah. little statement covers about twenty other things. Yep. So see, I got I got my I got my thing. So it means that you have your fulfillment together. It means that financially, this will make sense for you and for your backers. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you lose money at the end of this campaign, you're going to be bitter, yep. and it, it's it's not a good thing. Um, it means that you um, again you've organized yourself on multiple levels so that you design, you create, you sell, and you ship the product. And I think if you manage to complete these steps on the first time, first Kickstarter campaign, first attempt, I think it's amazing. Yeah. Because there will be a lot of lessons, things will go wrong. Um, Obviously, manufacturing is one lesson. There will be uh, logistics, there will be accounting, there will be all sorts of things that you're going to hit up against. So I would say make sure that you have all your ducks in a row from all these uh, uh, perspectives to make sure that you, you deliver it to your backers and hopefully on time as well, because that would be amazing. That, that perfect answer. That's uh, <laughs> y- you're going to be a consultant at some point for this stuff. <laughs> perfect answer. Uh, we have so many people who just skip over the, Oh, it'll be easy to deliver this thing to them. It's like, man, you have no idea how hard it is. No idea. Filled out of their living room. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah, I, well, it's always like I've made ten of them. It's like you've got to make a thousand. Yeah, you know, not, not you know, you got to go to the post office to ship a thousand. Have you ever done that? No, yep. no, you know. So, all right, great. Well, Vlad, I can't tell you enough, uh, enough how much appreciate you taking the time and talking about it. It's a great product. Uh, I'm gonna be ordering some for my son. Uh, you know, uh, we're gonna get some here. For, it looks like for Christmas. That's when you're expecting to deliver, right? That's right. Yeah, so that'll be a great Christmas gift uh, uh, for my son. Uh, you know, maybe even the. I'm sure my daughter will play with him as well. But she's in her Barbies right now, so uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, but yeah, I appreciate it, man. I, I I can't tell you enough. And um, yeah, it's great great conversation. I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much, Jeff. The pleasure was all mine. All right, I'll talk to you later. Thanks. Awesome. Bye.